Ah, hello. Andy here. Thank you for listening to episode 115 of That Listed on the Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith. I just want to alert you to the fact that the sound quality on this episode is not everything that we might have wished. As you'll be aware, we're recording Backlisted under quite challenging circumstances at the moment. Uh, We had a few technical troubles while we were recording the episode, and then when we played the different feeds back, we found that the gremlins had got into them too. But we didn't want to lose the episode because Laura and Edward were such great guests and because we all love the book so much. So we hope you enjoy this episode of Backlisted. Uh, We apologise if the sound quality isn't up quite up to our normal standards, but we hope it doesn't spoil your enjoyment too much. Anyway, this episode of Backlisted was recorded on Thursday the 25th of June 2020 and reflects the language and social attitudes of its time. Laura, where are you? Uh, I am about half a mile away from Clapham Common, where there are currently, I think, something in the region of about a million people, most of them with nothing on. Oh, it is so in a bad way. Sounds good. Yeah. In a, oh. <laughs> They've been there all the way through the virus. So if you've got it, it's come from them. <laughs> okay. We should say we're recording this on Thursday, the 25th Thursday, of June. Thursday, the 25th of June. 2020. It's the hottest day of the year. I don't know about everyone else who I'm talking to at the moment, but it is very unpleasant in here, uh, in my little box. Sticky. Edward, where are you? Uh, I'm holed up in Hitchin in Hertfordshire, and I'm dying. Uh, This is no fun for the Hussute gentleman. (laughs) (laughs) Did you used to live in Broadstairs, or do you still have a place in Broadstairs, or what? I I used to live in Broadstairs, but that was nice. But I'm probably going to mention the fact that I uh, fess up to the fact that I lived in Basingstoke, which I think is... um, I saw I saw uh, when I was reading your your article the other day, Andy, that you were complaining about Croydon being terrible and and uh, you have problems with people saying how shit Croydon is all the time. I really do. That is nothing compared to coming from Basingstoke. <laughs> <laughs> so you're trying to out suburb me with your? Uh, I, I'll see your Basingstoke and raise you a pearly. I always thought there was exactly. I always thought there was a level between you know crap towns, you know, uh, which was obviously tended to go towards the kind of Combinoles and the Hulls and the <laughs> and the Skelmersdales. Actually, dull towns would be it would be a good book, wouldn't it? I mean, towns in which almost nothing happens and there is almost nothing of of value. Kind of inspired by Betjeman's Slough. But, ah, but, um, well, we may we we may encounter that poem later in the podcast. We may. I tragically moved from Brighton to Basingstoke when I was seven and thought it was better. So uh, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> we're going to deal with all these topics at some length in the hour ahead. So why don't Sh- we crack on? Sh- shall we crack on? <laughs> Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us in Brickfield Terrace a pleasant street in the agreeable north London suburb of Holloway, standing outside a nice six-room residence with a garden running down to the railway line and a boot scraper outside the front door that seems to bark the shin of every tradesman that visits. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today are returning guest Laura Cumming, and new guest, Edward Higgins. Hello, both of you. Hello. Edward, you must know that obviously I really wanted to find, given we have one guest called Coming, I really <laughs> wanted the second guest to be someone called Going or Gowing because of the book that we're talking about. But we've got a Higgins, so that's good news, good. good news for fans of My Fair Lady or Magnum I mean- P.I., 
Higgins and Cumming could definitely be a double act in this book. <laughs> couldn't they? If you if you like uh, Hancock's Half Hour, Higgins is a hilarious surname. So Bert Higgins is their go-to <laughs> idiot. So <laughs> again, we may be hearing something from that later on in this podcast. So Laura is returning for her. Uh, second visit. She first joined us in December 2016. Goodness me. <gasps> to discuss Jane Gardens a long way from Verona. And let's just say that that's still one of my favourite books that I had not read before Batlister, which I read because of Batlister. And I know many listeners will feel the same way. So Completely once again, Laura, you. thank you so much for... I'm now going to reveal that, that Jane Gardens' editor came up to me uh, at... It Marks and Spencer's at St Pancras Station and thanked me, the podcast, and you and Hilary Murray Hill for talking about um, Jane Gardam and that wonderful book on the podcast. So thank you. Laura is the Observer's art critic and wrote The Vanishing Man, a book about Velasquez that centred on a Victorian bookseller who resembles the eponymous hero of today's book in certain touching ways and which featured in the B.S. Johnson episode. I talked about uh, The Vanishing Man in that episode as well. And last year, she published a memoir about her mother's strange early life on Chapel Sands, uh, which we featured in the Ray Bradbury episode. So we are big fans of Laura's work on Backlist. We are. Laura's mother once bound and illustrated an edition of the book we're discussing today as an art student. Her only Laura's only other claim of connection. Why don't you tell us, Laura, what is your other yeah. connection? <laughs> well, I'm afraid my claim of connection is actually very puterish because... I used to live in a, a long time ago when I first came to live in London. Um, I got the luck of having um, a sort of, you know, completely barren bedsit. But the barren bedsit was in a beautiful Georgian building uh, owned by the Portman Estate. And it was down the side of the Wallace Collection um, in London. And on the front of the building were two blue plaques. And the first was for Captain Marriott, who wrote Children of the... New Forest. Thank you, John. Yeah. Great. And um, the other one was George Grossman. And I was incredibly excited by this because of my love of the book that we're about to discuss today. And um, and it's only very recently <laughs> when communicating with Edward Higgins, who's coming on also later, as you know, um, that I discovered that it's not, it's not the George Grossmith at all. <laughs> oh. and, um, um, the, in fact, I suppose it's probably his son, is it? I, I don't know. But anyway, it's, just, it's, it's his son, yeah. manager on it. And uh, I got it wrong. He was in Dorset Square around the corner. But um, I think I might have preened a bit in a puterish sort of way. Uh, it was... It, it was um, and we're still doing so until this week. Oh, it was George Grossmith Feast rather than... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was. It was, yes. uh, OK, yes. well, uh, you know... That's take that your your status as a, a, a diary of a nobody super van takes a bit of a knock there, Laura. But <laughs> Laura, I did tell you to style it out, and you haven't done so. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and we're also joined today by Edward Higgins. Edward is the author of one novel, Conversations with Spirits, which was published by Unbound in 2013 and was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award. He's the former editor-in-chief of The Bluffer's Guide and the current editor-in-chief of a free app called Sidekick, helping people with mental health issues. Last year, he wrote introductions and annotations for the book under discussion today. So he is a bona fide expert. He wanted yes. me to say he isn't, but listen, he really is. He is a, <laughs> he is a dire of a nobody expert. Uh, a super and, fan. <laughs> and he is currently writing, producing and performing a new podcast set to go live this week called Lars Head Supernormal. <laughs> <laughs> is that right? Is that right? Yeah. I didn't think you mentioned any of this. So okay. <laughs> Which also contains readings from the eponymous hero's autobiography, There Is No Life. Based on the novel by Victorian psychic Florence Marriott, of whom more later. Oh. And he's also finishing a novel based on the book we're here to discuss, which is The Diary of a Nobody by George and Whedon Grossmith, first serialised in Punch magazine in 1888 to 1889 and published in volume form by J.W. Arrowsmith, a publisher in Bristol, in 1892. It has been in print ever since. But before we mount the horse-drawn cab for Holloway, Andy, what have you been reading this week? 
Well, it's the latest instalment in a series of books that I've been talking about on the last few episodes of Batlisted. Um, I've been reading a book called The Local, which was written by Morris Gorham with illustrations by Edward Ardizzoni. And I'm assuming listeners will all be familiar with Edward Ardizzoni's work, but Laura, if they aren't, um, you, given that you are an art critic, could you tell them in 10 seconds about Edward Ardizzoni? Edward Ardizzoni is absolutely benign, wonderful drawings. They are softly rounded little groups of figures in these sort of solid group scenes um, and the staging of the events, little dramas that he shows are very larky. He did wonderful drawings of the Second World War um, and even those drawings, which might have been in other hands, you know, very devastating to look at, that they've got a sort of, you know, Fellini-esque, garrulous mm. merriment to them. And I don't think anyone uh, looking at his lovely, lovely, these beautiful colour um, graphic line and watercolour illustrations for so many books that we love, um, I don't think anybody isn't made better by looking at them. Two of the greatest children's books ever published, in my view, Stig of the Dump. Anyway... The Otterbury Incident, which isn't as well known, but ought to be read. It's one of my... Oi, my five minutes is ticking down. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I'll shut up. <laughs> so, uh, so I came to this book, The Local. Um, I'm going to read out the captions of some of the illustrations. Obviously, we can't show you the illustrations because this is audio, but I'm going to read out the captions of some of the illustrations in a minute. But I came to this book because... It was mentioned alongside uh, John Piper's Brighton Aquatints, which I talked about a few episodes ago, and High Street by Eric Revillius and J.M. Richards. And it's of a piece with uh, Romantic Moderns, which is another book that I've talked about on the podcast, and Square Haunting, which I talked about on the last episode. And um, I, I, bought this, uh, I bought this book, The Local at Christmas, and I just have to tell you, listeners, I'm really sorry because... I because since I purchased this, I've realised it, it's it's such a wonderful book. It was republished by Little Toller about ten years ago, but it's out of print. Um, so it seems like I'm taunting you. I really don't mean to, but it's actually quite expensive to buy a copy now. So I'm very sorry in advance because you will want to uh, get hold of a copy of this book. Um, what it is, it's a it was published in 1939. It's a book about pubs. Gosh knows we're all keen to revisit pubs under safe circumstances. <laughs> so what um, the local does is it takes us through the pubs of London just before the Second World War. And in fact, this is quite a rare book before it was republished because like John Piper's Brighton Aquatints, lots of copies were either lost or destroyed during the war and getting paper was obviously an issue as well and the kind of paper that could sustain illustrations and, and um, uh, uh, colour illustrations. And so it's like a little, the book is like a little portrait of what pubs were like in London in the late 1930s. And we meet the regulars, solitary drinkers, barmaids, groups of customers, a guide to food in pubs, the general tenor of which is don't eat in pubs. Um, it's sort of, and they talk about tin whistle musicians and they talk about the games that a pub played in in pubs and they there's a fantastically useful glossary of terms a few of which i'll, I'll just read out here but it, it tells you it, it tells you for instance um what beer means in a pub in this era a generic term for all malt liquors it is sometimes used to include even stout if you ask for beer in a london pub without specifying what beer you want you will probably get bitter so it talks you through the different types of drink. It talks you through the fact that you would go in and, and get different types of beer mixed together. So, John, you would ask for a pint of bitter and stout. And bitter. You know, but, but, but this is the thing I wanted to ask you, John. So this, a, a man can build a powerful thirst reading this book. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a drink, a draft beer called Burton, presumably the, the, the from which we get the phrase gone for a Burton. Yeah. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing yeah. that that might be the case. Yeah. No, it's a suit. It's a suit. Ah, it's a suit. okay. It's, uh, All right. right. No, Sorry. great. Well, That's go. good to know. 
you know, you weren't living in George Grossmith's house. And uh, <laughs> so, so, so there we are. Uh, Burton, a draft beer, darker and sweeter than bitter. Called originally after the great brewing town of Burton-on-Trent, Burton is also known as Old. Popular compounds are BB, Bitter and Burton, and Old and Mild, Mild and Burton. Some pubs keep a special Burton, which is more of a strong ale and makes an excellent mixture with Mild, having more body than the ordinary Burton, even when mixed. Many pubs do not keep Burton during the hot weather, counting it a winter drink. So, it, and it features in this book regularly. And it made me want a pint of Burton more than I've ever wanted any drink. <laughs> you haven't got any, Johnny, have you? I haven't, but I, I, I know that it is. I think it is being made by some by people well, still. I'm gonna I'm gonna find some. No, here's the thing: Fuller's Brewery in Chiswick, where I used to live. Yeah. Not the brewery, uh, <laughs> Chiswick, <laughs> is currently selling Burton to their to a 1931 recipe. Or uh, in their past masters range, it's seven point four percent proof, and, and is three point seven units a bottle. So you could you would disregard the daily units intake just by drinking a bottle of this, but unfortunately it costs forty five pounds. So if anyone from Fuller's is listening and, <laughs> and regards that as product placement. I'm easy to find. <laughs> or any listeners who happen to have a spare bottle of Burton lying around from 1931. We, we should make our first recording post, as it were, lockdown. Definitely. That, that's something we need to have on the table, I think, don't you? Wouldn't that be amazing? It would. Well, I, I'll just read a tiny bit. So this inspired me back in January when I first read this book to go on a little tour of Muse pubs because I was so taken with this description of the Muse pub a pub in a muse. And I went to, in, in around Knightsbridge and uh, around the back of Buckingham Palace, I went to the Grenadier and the Horse and Groom and the Star Tavern in the space of an afternoon in a sort of very genteel <laughs> pub crawl. And this is what uh, Maurice Gorham says about muse pubs. The most obvious advantage of the Muse pub is that it lies to some extent off the main track and you can therefore get a spurious sense of discovery or knowledgeableness out of going to it. Equally, if you are a furtive drinker, its air of secrecy may appeal to you. To turn down the Muse and then duck into the pub is less embarrassing to the easily embarrassed than to walk boldly into a pub on the main street. <laughs> Apart from these psychological points... Pubs in Mews often have real advantages. Often you find pubs in the Mews when the streets themselves have none. And on the whole, Mews pubs are quieter than pubs in the street. And it goes on about the sort of people who might drink in a Mews pubs. And it talks about the nicest Mews pub I have come across is the White Hart in Brooks Mews North, not far from the Bayswater Road. Listeners, I can tell you it was demolished in 2002. So it's, don't look for it at Spinal Tap and say it's not there anymore. So some of the illustrations by Ardizoni in here are called, uh, just give you a sense of it, Saloon Bar at the Prince Alfred, Public Bar at the George, the Jug and Bottle at the Green Man. It's the most beautiful thing. Anyway, that book is was published by Little Toller. If someone from Little Toller is listening, you ought to reprint this, really. I don't know what the rights issues are, but but everyone should read this but another wonderful book that i discovered as a result of our friends at mainstone and john piper's brighton acquaintance thank you john what have you been reading this week i've been reading a novel by american uh, uh novelist called percival everett it's called i am not sydney poitier it is one of the funniest things i have read for many years uh, uh everett is the author of 18 other novels this was published first by Grey Wolf in America in 2009, and it's taken 11 years, bafflingly, to be published in this country, which it's now been done with some style by Influx Press, uh, Kit Kalis at, at, at Influx Press. Um, and Gary Budden, our former guest on Backlisted. Indeed. It's a comic novel. 
the eponymous hero is called, his name, he's called by his mother, not Sidney Poitier. <laughs> I mean, think, so I am not Sidney Poitier. Yeah, okay, it's, right, it's yeah. literally so. so and, it, and it's rather like Darling in Blackadder. That joke runs through the whole book. In fact, I'm going to read you a little bit where it comes up. You know, people say, what's your name? He says, I'm not Sidney Poitier. And they say, no, but what's your name? I'm not Sidney, and so on. Ah, okay. um, it's very, very funny, but it's also incredibly clever. If I'm going to compare it to anything that I've read recently, it's in the kind of George Saunders short story, Francis Plug, How to Be a Public Author, Andrew Sean Greer's Less. I mean, this, the plot is absurd. Uh, his mother, he has a two-year gestation. It, it, behind it all is Tristram Shandy. It's that kind of playful, ludic, abstract novel. Yeah, okay. His mother has a two-year, has him in the womb for two years. He doesn't know whether this is true or not, but he's born. She invests in uh, in, a, in Ted Turner's TV channel and makes a massive amount of money. So he's he's born um, in LA. Uh, his mother is uh, leaves him, dies very when she's young, leaves him lots of money. He buys his way into college. He tries to get into a, a, a fraternity and decides he doesn't want to be part of a fraternity. Uh, Ted Turner, it becomes a friend of his, is a sort of kind of ominous grease philosopher who guides him on his passage to adulthood. The other character who guides him to his passage to adulthood is Percival Everett, an English professor uh, uh, who t- spouts kind of postmodern nonsense in the lectures, but who gives him some good kind of personal advice. Uh, there's so much incident in the book, but one of the things he does is he sends him on two trips outside of um, at, at Atlanta, where he's at university. Uh, one is to uh, to Peckerwood County in Georgia, where he's arrested for being black and thrown into prison, and he has to escape from prison. So there's a whole kind of ridiculous, uh, I mean, really well written, exciting passage where he's chained to a cracker, a kind of a, a, a sort of stupid white guy who. Um, who he has to escape with and they get rescued by a couple of hillbillies and he manages to get back to Atlanta. And then at the second journey out, he ends up in Smutai, Alabama, where almost the same thing happens again, except he decides he's going to use his vast wealth to help, help these elderly women to build the church that they want to build. Um, anyway, it delivers, I think, on almost every level. It's It never stops being funny. It never stops making you realise that what the book is to some degree about is the identity of being a black American, an African American, and how identity is continually being foisted upon you. And he does that with a subtlety. Yeah. There's a great introduction by the uh, uh, wonderful... Um, uh, novelist Courtier New- Newland, who's, who says at the beginning of the book, he said that he's ignored, Percival Everett has been ignored by the publishing industry because he's not considered black enough. And Courtier says, I'm an author who considers himself ignored by the industry because my work is too black. I mean, what I will definitely be doing is reading more of the, the novels. There's a brilliant bit towards the end where one, uh, the Percival Everett ca- character, uh, one of the other characters, in fact, Ted Turner says, I read your book, Erasure, which is a real book by Percival Everett. He said, I didn't like it. And <laughs> Percival Everett said, I didn't like it much either <laughs> but in a sort of john irving what anyway. yeah it sounds really great and it also sounds you know it's really good that influx you yeah know, it's, it's a brilliant. not insignificant thing for influx to take to take this and do it you know it really reminds me of the of i mean they might and, and they probably would still do it but it's very much the sort of thing that canongate uh, yeah. under Jamie Bing yeah. were doing about 20 you know years the other ago, person you know Dan Rhodesy it's Dan it's got yeah. that as well it's right. it, and, but it, it doesn't drop a stitch I, I couldn't recommend it highly let me read you a little bit from it let's hear a bit uh, he's here talking to Percival Everett in the in this in the canteen he's about to go and um, to the parents in a it's it's uh, in a scene that really reminds me of the of the movie Get Out, he's going to go and see his girlfriend. Not only does he is he called not Sydney Poitier, he looks like Sydney Poitier. So there's that double double thing going on all the way. So he's asking for advice. And here was I going to invite you over to my place for Thanksgiving. Everett said, "Really? No." We were sitting in the student centre. He picked at a muffin. Oh, I'm sure you'll have a fine, memorable time in Washington. Young Miss Larkin seems very nice. I think she's quite bright. Oh, I'm not a good judge of these things. Her old boyfriend will be there, I said. Uh, he has to be someplace. Why does that make you nervous? He's the old boyfriend. What if she still has feelings for him? Better to find out sooner than later. Of course he was correct, but I was finding little comfort in that fact. It's just that I like her so much. You're rapidly becoming a boring fellow, Everett said. Have you had sex with her? Uh, I believe that's my business. I'll take that as a yes. I don't really think we should be talking about this, I said. 
and looked out the window. Okay, okay, relax. Don't get your no doubt patterned bloomers in a clove hitch. I drummed my fingers on my thigh, upset that I was not relaxed. But I said, I'm relaxed. What about her parents? Are you nervous about meeting them? Extremely. Well, don't tell them that you've seen their baby naked. That's my best piece of advice. Thanks a lot. And be yourself. Who else would I be? I don't know. You might suddenly decide all of a sudden that you are Sidney Poitier. You're not, you know, though you do look alarmingly like him. Tell me, who do I look like? I looked over his facial features. His sad but alert brown eyes were too close to his face. His lips were strangely thin. His large nose looked like it had been broken several times. I could think of no one he resembled. I don't know many actors, I finally said. What about Roscoe Lee Brown? I don't know who that is. Come on, you know Roscoe Lee Brown. He was all over the television. Maybe he still is. He was in The Cowboys with John Wayne. I don't much like John Wayne, but Roscoe Lee Brown was great. Anyway, you'd know him if you saw him, he said. I know you would. Um, what about Bill Cosby? You look nothing like Bill Cosby, <laughs> I said. Thank the Lord, Everett said. If only there were such a thing. But seriously... You have to know that you look more like Sidney Poitier than Sidney Poitier ever did. <laughs> have you ever seen In the Heat of the Night? No. no. It's a beautiful love story, that movie. Let me hear you say, they call me Mr. Tibbs. They call me Mr. Tibbs, I said. No, say it as if a crab is biting your ass, <laughs> as if something is peeling an unpleasant and undesired memory from your core, as if you're feeling a little bitchy, as if you might be gay. But even you don't know. I said it again. Uncanny. You ever do drugs? I shook my head. That's too bad, but hardly surprising. He stood, looked out the window at a Spellman girl in a short skirt and then down at me. Enjoy your break. And remember, be yourself. Unless you can think of someone better. <laughs> Very good. Very good. We'll be back in just a sec. Let me ask you first, Laura, when did you first discover the Diary of a Nobody? Well, earlier than I think, by the sound of it, because I used to dance to that music at Miss Middleton's dancing class in Edinburgh when I was about Oh, how brilliant. So, uh, I mean, we all sang that music, so yeah, it's lovely to hear it. I heard um, The Diary of a Nobody read aloud um, by my mother when I suppose I was about eight, and she had loved it for many years, and as you said at the beginning of the programme, she had done an, an illustrated version of it herself. Um, anybody listening to this... Will, is bound to have a copy of it somewhere in their house. So are all their forebears, and there are hundreds of different versions of it. Um, Wheaton Grossmith himself, I think, incomparably illustrated it, but loads of artists, including Artisoni, have actually wanted to do more with the character, the characters in the book, um, the, the sort of wonderful you know, list of um, perk-ups and putties and poshes and pits and so on are kind of irresistible to... Um, English wow, graphic. that was a lot of things uh, right there. Well, well, well yeah, exactly. You, you did well there. It was great. Um, but I remember being read, read aloud um, very well because my brother and I, sitting, we would be lying in our beds next to each other in a tiny little room with, you know, my mother sitting in between us. And my brother would howl with laughter at certain points and I would cry. <laughs> and mm. I still feel very strongly um, that the great feat of this book is to be so very funny and so very poignant. Um, so that is my earliest memory. Well, all, all readings are, are valid. Edward, can you remember when you first came across Grossmith or, or The Diary of a Nobody? I can. Why not tell me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I could do that. I bought it at a jumbled sale, because I'm classy, uh, when I was about nine years old. Uh, and I think it cost about five pence, five new pence. Mm. And um, my main interests at that point were the Victorian period and Hancock's Half Hour. And this kind of was basically everything for me. So it was, it was, it was those two things that kind of cemented together. Your annotations for the edition that, we, that, you, that you published last year are a lovely mixture of fact yeah. and a personal commentary <laughs> <laughs> and in the nicest possible way as a reader that I felt looking at them that I was being treated by someone whose whose enthusiasm was palpable in the in how they felt about the book yeah I'm I'm a fan I think you <laughs> I've, been, I've been basically reading this book every year all my life 
And the weird thing is that my affiliations with the book change. Uh, when I was young, uh, when I was 10, I loved Lupin and the, and the Holloway comedians. <laughs> and now, as, a, a, as a, a horrible, rank old man, I'm much more sympathetic to, to Puta. This is exactly the same experience that Evelyn Waugh had, didn't he? He had exactly that. He 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 read it on the and he was on the side of of, of Lupin. And then as as you get older, you you kind of you see more to the to the to the. Well, we're very similar people, of, John, <laughs> as as you know. Comic novelists, yes, let's be sure. If there's any reason there's anyone listening to this who doesn't know the Diary of an Opening, if they don't, they kind of do because it's so seeped into the culture anyway. But I want to play you the very a clip of a reading of the very beginning of the book. This is my favourite audiobook reading of all time. It's by the late Arthur Lowe, uh, most famous for as his part of Captain Mannering in Dad's Army, but of course an actor who worked in all sorts of spheres. And uh, he recorded The Diary of a Nobody for the BBC in 1975 or 77. This has been available commercially, but it hasn't been available commercially for quite a long time, and it's not available in the digital realm. So this is a, this is rather a hissy um, recording because I took it off the cassettes and then I cleaned it up to the best of my ability. But here is Arthur Lowe reading the beginning of The Diary of a Nobody. Why should I not publish my diary? I have often seen reminiscences of people I have never even heard of, and I fail to see, because I do not happen to be a somebody, why my diary should not be interesting. My only regret is that I did not commence it when I was a youth. Charles Pooter. <laughs> After my work in the city, I like to be at home. What's the good of a home if you're never in it? Home, sweet home. That's my motto. Now for my diary. <clears throat> April the 3rd. Tradesman called for custom, and I promised Farmerson, the ironmonger, to give him a turn if I wanted any nails or tools. By the by, that reminds me, the bells must be seen to. The parlour bell is broken, and the front door rings up in the servant's bedroom, which is ridiculous. <laughs> April the 4th. In the evening, Cummings unexpectedly dropped in to show me a meerschaum pipe he'd won in a raffle in the city. He told me to handle it carefully, as it would spoil the colouring if the hand was moist. He said he wouldn't stay, as he didn't care much for the smell of paint, and fell over the scraper as he went out. Must get the scraper removed, or else I shall get into a scrape. <laughs> <laughs> I don't often make jokes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. Oh, it I so think good. it is anyway. Um, Laura, you're not. You're not. You don't love that reading, though. Do you want to say why? I don't you, love that uh, reading. Um, it's not that I don't love the reading, Andy. Um, I don't think anybody has ever read it better. And as everybody knows, you know, in this in this programme, there are numerous recordings of it. And, you know, he beats Martin Jarvis into a cocked hat. But it's, yeah. it's the time. He really does. Um, he, really he really does. does. Really but, does. but that's not my problem. My, my worry is not to do with the extraordinary high quality of that reading. It's that I don't want to hear it read. <laughs> it probably goes back a bit to um, listening to my mother or maybe something like that. I know, but yeah. for me, um, Arthur Lowe, when he reads, it becomes Mannering, uh, Captain Mannering, and um, Captain Mannering stands between me and Pooter. So I don't really want to. Mm, I don't want to okay. hear that. And the reason I don't is because, as I was saying earlier, um, I really treasure, as everybody uh, on this podcast does i'm sure i really treasure pooter um he's terribly pompous and you know his puns are absolutely appalling and so on but he's also terribly modest um and the world divides somewhat on this subject and no doubt we'll be discussing it but what i feel about him is that the 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 real comedy of this book um which i think can only be in silence on the page is to do with the fact that when he tells his day and we've just heard it beautifully read as you say by Arthur Lowe, when he tells his day he is telling you all of the stupid things he's done, all the minor pomposities, all the unbelievably irritable um, vanities that he has and so on. And then he's giving you his comeuppances. So he tells you about the things that led up to the humiliations of which this book is replete. Um, and he does so with this complete candour, which really, I think, uh, marks him out against, um, if, if I could throw this one down, 
all the people who have drawn from this character and made sitcoms and, and so on out of it. Um, I don't, I'm afraid I haven't read Edward's novel yet, so um, I don't know what... No one has, that's I'll be really interested to hear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that what I, what I worry about in this book, and obviously the book is very much about hope and a certain arrogance and great expectations and so on, all of which are, you know, comically deflated and um, it always ends for him in humiliation. And when I was a little girl on that bed, you know, that was what made me cry because I felt he wasn't Captain Mannering so much as Godfrey. So he was this figure who oh. um, was, you know, always humiliated, <laughs> always humiliated. He was the man who, if he'd been an older gentleman, he'd have been the one who had to go home because he had to relieve himself, you know, like poor Godfrey. So Why were you crying at Puta? Uh, because, I, because of those... <laughs> those reasons I'm, I'm saying because every single time he gets into this sort of dilemmas I don't cry about him now Edward don't worry I have grown up over the age of eight <laughs> I did at the time and I, I suppose what I feel is that he's one of the reasons I think this is such a masterpiece of prose he is a truly humble creation actually insofar as he writes it all down he doesn't just um come along and tell you that you know everybody was terrible to him and they were all appalling he tells you all the things that happened to him that led to these ridiculous humiliations many of which he deserves um and so for me when you hear Arthur Lowe reading it you're you're hearing um what is essentially because of his brilliance and because of the character he plays a kind of dramatization of the book and it isn't a drama to me it is this very intimate piece of comic writing okay before I go to Edward, may I just say that I've got a very straight, there are two very straightforward reasons why I love Arthur Lowe's reading. The first is just technically, as a, as in terms of the delivery, the things that he's getting the laughs off in the bit that we listen to are exquisite. Into it, timing, the timing, the persistent timing is incredible, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is, you talked about Martin Jarvis. We're not singling Martin Jarvis out. I'm also throwing Hugh Bonneville into this yeah. bin. <laughs> I can't stand <laughs> right because of because you, because the genesis, for better or worse, of Diary of a Nobody is in Punch and is kind of based in some kind of hatred of the middle class or or the lower middle class, and then they kind of as it goes on they lose some of that. So the early passages, particularly the bits we've just heard, they sort of they're laughing at Clark's, which is a a big thing for high culture in that period is sneering at the suburbs but as the book goes on it they that falls away it seems to me i can't stand any adaptation or audio reading if the person speaks like that oh mr pooter i'm mr pooter and they they stay they, they they tripped over the uh over the scraper because we're common and we're sort of you're lo- yeah. that interpretation is laughing at Pooter and that class of people. Whereas what Arthur Lowe does is warm that through. You know, there isn't, he takes it out of the realm of that kind of sneering and brings it into a more universe place. So that's why I love it so much anyway. Edward, where do you stand on the great Arthur Lowe uh, issue? I love Arthur Lowe, obviously. He was, um, well, my favourite thing in the world when I was a child was Mr. Men. So... Of course. I would like to buy some potatoes, said Mr. (laughs) Greedy. So, I mean, where where do you go wrong with that? There's nothing. So, I don't think he's as ridiculous as Captain Mannering. Um, I think he's he's a little more subtle than that. But, I mean, it's a brilliant reading because Arthur Lowe is brilliant at reading. So, there's loads of other uh, versions out there. Don't obviously go for the LibriVox recording. Never, never do that. I uh, mean, what one never would. But are there any? Recordings? I wish I'd found a recording by an American doing it. There must be some, right? No, it's never really taken off in America. That's one of the peculiar things. It's just never happened. Orwell thought that it, it should have been translated into Russian because he thought it was like Chekhov. <laughs> I think is, that's fair, don't you? Which I, I think, think it. Fair. I think is. I think it's pretty good. Orwell complains about um, the, the name of the house in Coming Up for Air. He's whinging about the, the, the names of, of 
various <laughs> horrible horrible houses that just have have the same name and the laurels is the first one he picks so you should have called it coming up for air gowing up for air <laughs> um so we've got uh normally we'd read a blurb now on back but we've got we've got, we've got we've got a guest to come in and uh, give us a description of the book here's a clip of uh, the late film director Ken Russell, recorded in 2004, talking us through the uh, plot and the themes of The Diary of a Nobody. Yes, I, I love the 19th century. One of my very favourite books from that century is George and Whedon Grossmith's The Diary of a Nobody. In fact, I loved it so much, I made a, a film for the BBC on it, which was shown in the 60s. It was like so much Turk was never shown again. Actually, <laughs> the publishers didn't like the way I treated the subject. I, a bit controversial. But um, the story is about a very amiable sort of fellow. He's a clerk in a business establishment in the city. He lives at the railway cuttings in Holloway, and the house is called The Laurels. He's married, wife Carrie, and um, a renegade sort of son called Lupin. And uh, But he tries to emulate, I, I guess, the upper middle class a little instead of the class he's in, which is sort of lower middle. It's a, a diary of trivia. Um, misunderstandings, arguments, petty annoyances, mostly with tradespeople <laughs> and clerks at the office where he works, and even his own son and wife, and even his friends. But it's a very amicable thing, and as the mistakes and the trivialities which cause him a great deal of concern grows, so your um, love of the character grows with it, or it does as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, spot on. That's pretty good, isn't it? Spot on. I think that's spot on. Um, Laura, have you got a bit of the Diary of a Nobody you could read to us? Yeah, um, uh, I should say that, as I like you, Edward, when <laughs> we, we change over with our, you know, you like Lupin and then eventually you like Poudre or you, you sympathise or your empathy is in that direction. Um, for me, I think it's it runs, it runs all the way through every kind of... Um, uh, comic trope actually it seems to me so it has you know slapstick and it has running gags and it has esprit yeah. de l'escalier and it has wonderful satirical yeah. sends ups and so on and um there are moments in it that um i suppose would be they they were theater people george and Reed and as you said at the beginning and i mean there are moments that would and this is what i think is one of the genius aspects of this book that would look absolutely brilliant on stage and have been done on stage i mean there's a marvelous bit where he goes to the firework party and you know and the enormous incredibly expensive catherine wheel that everyone is always waiting to begin doesn't begin and of course it's he of all the people at the party who taps it and immediately falls off the wall and you read the these moments in the book are, are would be wonderful visual gags but they're also beautifully written um, i think it's a, a genius for combining the two they're about mortification all about mortification. You know, all that, about that he's always yes. doing the saying yeah. the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing and knowing yes. it. Yes, which is why I think I love him so much because he does he does it. Yeah, he, he's irritated enough to do it, or he's stupid enough to do it, or he's immodest enough to do it. Then he does it, and then he gets you know he gets his punishment. And all of these things are written down so so brilliantly. I mean, like, you know, um, Ken Russell. So weird hearing Ken Russell talking about. <laughs> hey, I meant to say that his 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 adaptation is on. It's all about YouTube Diary of a Nobody. Of course, it is. Uh, Ken Russell's adaptation is on YouTube at the moment. I don't know how long ah. it'll last. Mm -hmm. It's clearly been uploaded from a from a, a slightly dodgy copy, but it's really worth watching. It's yeah. very good, and um, he treats it as a silent film with narration. Oh, brilliant! I'd love to see. Um, it. It's about, and it was in a, it was a monitor, so it's like yeah. fifty minutes or something like that. Anyway, well, I was, I was going to just read a little bit because it's um, obviously Pooja has a very happy marriage. Um, and given that we're supposed to be laughing at him, this seems to me to be another great feat of wonderful writing. Yes, um, as a portrait of absolutely. a marriage. Honestly, I have read this book myself at times in my own life where I've thought, Christ, I wish I had this marriage. It's so <laughs> genial. You know, they never kind of have a flash. You know, they're, they're the, the most um, 
the greatest point of friction, I suppose, is the diary itself, which is another bit of wonderful, wonderful sort of... Almost, oh, the, border, um, the borders pun. Come on. No, well, absolutely, there are others. But, you know, when, they really, when he's really disappointed in his wife, it's because she doesn't love his diary, isn't it? It's because oh, she was yeah. listening or she was doing the laundry or she doesn't care. Well, that's, um, that's and, the moment where he is futurist. Where he's the most, most future, yes, absolutely, yeah. I, I completely. Um, but otherwise, I think this book is suffused with this rather kind of tender um, marriage, you know. And when when the wretched Lupin announces that he's going to marry Daisy Mutlar, um, Daisy <laughs> Mutlar, oh, a tremendous neologisms of names in this book all the way through, and it's obviously sort of going to be a very premature engagement because he's only just come back from being chucked. And another um, neologism by the uh, is it Oldham I think where he where he's been a, a you know in a bank um, and so he's met this woman she's obviously going to be completely unsuitable she's considerably older she's quite loud and she's got really heavy eyebrows which Whedon Grossmith in the great illustrations that run through the book shows yes. so you hear that it's Indeed. always laid out so well by publishers I think and by uh, originally as it appeared um, if you see these. Um, drawings in the V&A where they are you know you see how well publishers have used them over the years squashing them down and you know um and you turn the page to find out what Mark Laura looks like sorry Daisy Mark Laura looks like and sure enough she's you know she's horrendous looking a gargoyle really almost and so they're very worried and my reading is simply this um they are very worried about this marriage. The engagement's just been announced. Carrie and I talked the matter over during the evening and agreed that it did not always follow that an early engagement meant an unhappy marriage. Dear Carrie reminded me that we were married early, and with the exception of a few trivial misunderstandings, we had never had a really serious word. I could not help thinking, as I told her, that half the pleasures of life were derived from the little struggles and small privations that one had to endure at the beginning of one's married life. Classic proof of this, Carrie said, I had expressed myself wonderfully well and that I was quite a philosopher. And, um, <laughs> of course, he has to brag, but she's right, and he is. And so I love him for that. So it's a beautiful poem. Brilliant. The slang element there. Laura was talking about the slang in Diary of a Nobody. So there are numerous terms, aren't there, that, that, hadn't, been, that hadn't entered the English language Right, the, the two that I've written down are Chuck, where Lupin says he's got the Chuck from his job and that one of his speculations is a dead sir. Both are cited by the Oxford English Dictionary as being the first. So dead sir and Chuck are two of the, are two of the terms. Mitch, have you got any more? Well, um, yeah, apparently bussing was another one and Blithering, the first use of the term blithering idiot is, is recorded in... Uh, that can't be the case, surely. Uh, well, the first time blithering is, is in the OED is, is, is in 1868. In a, uh, uh, that's, that's that first time blithering, but in, in, in association with idiots. So, oh, but basically, this, that Lupin slang is, as I think you, we mentioned earlier, the slang was kind of controversial because it was, you know, he was a fast talker. He was kind of, he, he was... He was speaking often in in ways that uh, his father didn't understand at all. Was he a swell? We think he might be a swell. I think he might have been a swell. Yeah. <laughs> the use of the, but the use of slang is a tell to the contemporary reader, isn't it? That's the point. That, that, yeah. that there were in etiquette guides in this era, you were advised never if you wanted to be respectable in the way that Charles Pooter does then you would not indulge in slang because people would think the less of you. So part of the friction in the, in the original reading, if you were there then, was the freedom with which Lupin employs all manner of slang terms and the, the offence that it causes his long-suffering parents. So we were talking earlier about the, the um, influence of the Diary of a Nobody and how it seeped into the culture. And one of the ways in which it seeped into the culture is the Pooterish character, the word Pooterish in the OED, obviously, but also how it's reflected in... Yeah, I've got an issue with that, by the way. I don't think Pooter is Pooterish. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. Yes. I don't think he's Pooterish. The beginning of every chapter is basically about him 
telling jokes and being silly and doing doing nice things and he dances he dances his wife uh, he does a polka on his uh in, in his living room and it's that's not a putrist is it i tell you what edward every time i hear somebody use the word putrist i think oh right yeah you hate people from croydon like me <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's what you mean by putrist yeah i get you i see you <laughs> There's a marvellous moment where, which Matthew Sweet mentions in his book too, is where when they're doing the charades, he suggests the game, the blonde in, he comes in as the blonde in donkey. Yeah. And that was like one of the biggest kind of most sensational acts that was a tightrope walking donkey. Yeah. And just little bits like that where you think that Peter's, he's a bit more, he's a bit more hip and a bit more down with stuff than he, he lets on. Um, well, look, here, here is, I, I pulled together a, a selection of clips of uh, characters from British sitcoms that I think owe a debt to Charles Pooter and to the Grossmiths. I've got it all down in my diary. I didn't know you kept a diary, Tub. Of course I keep a diary. All great men keep diaries. <laughs> Old Peppies and... <laughs> Boswell, sure, all we literary herbits. <laughs> Every little thing that happens in my life goes down in this book. <clears throat> well, you never know. They might want to publish it in years to come or put it on the radio every day. What's happened in your life that could be of any value to anybody else? They will probably marvel at me perspicuity. <laughs> What's that? It doesn't matter what it is as long as people marvel at it. <laughs> so what should we do then? You choose. We could change the spark plugs on the doormobile. Spark plugs don't really set me alight, Martin. I think you should know that. <laughs> Fancy varnishing something. Not really. Look, why don't we do something we used to do? Badminton. Now, we haven't played badminton for ages. I wouldn't give that big head at the leisure centre the satisfaction. Well, what's he got to do with it? He thinks he owns those courts. I said to him, when I book a court for half an hour, I said, I expect half an hour, not 28 minutes. When was this? Three years ago. Come friendly bombs and fall on slough. It isn't fit for humans now. Right. I don't think you solve town planning problems by dropping bombs all over the place. So he's embarrassed himself there. Next. Come friendly bombs and fall on slough to get it ready for the plough. The cabbages are coming now. The earth exhales. He's the only cabbage round here. Hello, I'm Alan Partridge, and I'd like to tell you about a very special place. Whether you know it as East Anglia, the Plump Peninsula, home of the Broads, although that sounds like a refuge for fallen prostitutes, Albion's hindquarters, or quite simply, the Wales of the East. This is Norfolk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> glorious. So in order, we had Tony Hancock in Hancock's Half Hour, Martin Bryce, played by uh, Richard Bryars in The Great Ever-Decreasing Circles, David Brent, played by Ricky Gervais in The Office, and Alan Partridge, played by Alan Partridge, in a trailer for... <laughs> Uh, mid-morning matters with Alan Potch. I think, I think that's what that's from. <laughs> I've got a question, so I'm going to ask Laura first and then Edward. Kind of, does does The Diary of a Nobody work as a novel? Well, as I say, I, I think it works brilliantly as a novel. And I marvel at the way that they pick up the editorial problems that they've got, you know, such as the point at which Punch suddenly decides to uh, stop publishing issues. Uh, Punch itself, I think, wasn't published for a few months. And um, uh, and when they pick up again, he says, um, Putin says, you know, so, you know, these pages of my diary have gone missing and someone's taken them. Who's taken them? And then there's a great long comic, um, a really brilliantly paced uh, comic unfolding that runs through many pages, and you know, during the course of which he's searching for which servant is it who could have done this, who could have, you know, and so on. And um, so they shaped, they're very limber, these writers, and they shaped the book according to, I'm saying the book, because in a way, obviously, you know, we all know that in Victoria and every, you know, everybody was serialising stuff and so on. And I don't know, um, Edward will know, uh, I'm sure, you know, I don't think that they knew this was going to be published as a book, but it's, it's, it, it's shaped like that. I mean, it, us, you know, we, we know it begins with a scraper and it ends with a scraper. It begins with enamel paint, it ends with enamel paint. It's beautifully symmetrical and it goes through a sequence of um, humiliations which I think are sort of climaxing in the scene that you, I hope, I think, Andy, are going to read 
from later on. That moment where we see him listen to a, a front-on, I think is he supposed to be a parody of Frank Harris, the American writer. We see him front-on in front of 10 people, all named. This vicious, vicious attack, you know, is sent in his direction. Um, and he is gradually realising that the man with the soft head and the soft body and the soft brain and the soft hair and the soft life and the soft, stupid figure, soft suburban man, is him and um, that he is himself being mocked. To me, the only really very strong political point in a book which keeps its politics very carefully and subtly balanced all the way through is when this scene occurs and he is thinking about what is just and what is right and money and so on. And um, the book then comes gradually round to a sort of um, a slow crescendo and then a sort of finale, which I feel by that stage they must have known was going to be a, a sort of complete, a completing circle. And, um, you know, it ends beautifully. I mean, I, I would argue that there are moments in the last quarter that, you know, maybe they could have... <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what kind of deadline they were working to, whether yeah. they had to very rapidly turn out and so on. But um, so I think it does... Um, nobody who reads this book doesn't end up loving Pooter somewhat by the end. And that yeah. is the, the absolute evolution of a character in a novel. Edward, what do you think? Does it work as a novel? Um, yeah. It's probably a very satisfying novel that um, nothing really happens in. And I, <laughs> I, 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 I really like that as a book. It's a very unusual book insofar as fuck all happens, but everyone's really... It's, it's just a lovely read, and it's funny, and it's... And um, I've got a I've got a line that I think that I might have as my epitaph that is from this book, and it says, "I swept out of the room in silent dignity, and I caught my foot on the carpet." <laughs> and I, and I genuinely can't think of a better uh, way of explaining my life. I mean, it's it's an amazing book, so. Uh, it reminded me of that thing Matt Groening said about The Simpsons, that when they were, when they, uh, were originally um, pulling The Simpsons together, one of the things that they agreed upon was that for every extremely in pop culture reference they made in the script, they must remember to put in a gag with Homer hitting his head or hurting himself. <laughs> <laughs> so that they have the right balance between, because they're playing to a mixed uh, audience and that they have the right balance between physical jokes and intellectual jokes. And actually, funnily enough, again, the, the, the correlation between the diary of a nobody and sitcom rather than the diary of a nobody in yeah. fiction is different types of joke run all the way through the book. It's very interesting as a comedy writer to I've see say, how they... This book did not do well on first publication and uh, it was only in 1910 when it, I think it was its third publication that it did, it did all right. And there is an amazingly horrible quote from the Athenaeum magazine. Please give us that quote. The republication of Punch's The Diary of Nobody by G and W. Grossmith was hardly a happy thought or calculated to profit anyone. For it must be confessed that the book has no merit to compensate it for its hopeless vulgarity. <laughs> Blimey. Not even that being amusing. The satire, if a photographic representation of middle-class boredom can be dignified with this name, is not only dreary, but also has a cruel ring which is positively offensive. Such jibes argue unpardonably for the taste of the maker, causes no hilarity in the reader. Besides, it is so dull. And then it ends with this. The illustrations by Mr. Whedon Grossmith are admirably suited to the text. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, so... won't, we won't be inviting the reviewer of the Athenaeum on to discuss <laughs> That's pretty fucking harsh, isn't it? Oh. Hey, um, now, well, John, you know, uh, and John and Nikki will know that on Batlisted, the ultimate accolade that any book can receive is, has it been made into a West End musical? And um, <laughs> in the case of The Diary of a Nobody, uh, it hasn't been made into a West End musical, but it has been made into an off-West End musical. Laura, are you a big fan of musicals? 
Yes or no is fine. No, no, totally not. It's an understandable perspective. <laughs> Could you tell us a bit more about Whedon Grossmith and about Whedon's illustrations? Because we don't think that Whedon contributed to the text, do we? I'm kind of touched by the fact that it's always described as a book by George and Whedon Grossmith because I, I, you know, do we, I don't know what we do know about that. I mean, it seems obvious that, that there's a very strong voice in it, but, you know, they were great brothers and, you know, they worked together and they were on the stage together and so on. I think they did They did co-write it, though, didn't they? They did co-write yeah. it. Well, um, lots of people think they didn't. I, just, I don't know. His pictures weren't there until it was published as a book in... Uh, 1892. 1892, thank you. Thanks. And so we do, therefore, know they must have written it together because it was always described as being by both of them. So well right. done, we did okay. on every front. Well done, well done, yeah. The pictures are, um, you can see some of these drawings if you want, if you, if when, you know, when lockdown's over, you can go look at them in the V&A. Um, and they, I think they are the best things he did. Whedon's gift is, it's so light. At the beginning of this uh, podcast, you were talking about Artizoni and um, Revilius and John Piper and... Um, it was making me think of that wonderful book, which please may I recommend in this programme by Tom Lubbock, my uh, very esteemed, great uh, former um, art critic of The Independent, uh, who died some years ago, but um, who adored Pooter, adored Pooter. Um, and he wrote a book called English Graphic, which deals with, uh, you know, all these different ways in which we have found to laugh at ourselves as, as British people. Um, and Gro Whedon Grossmith is a footnote in there and it's a very great book, very mm. funny in itself. Well, I was going to read a bit from the book, but then I thought, well, why would I read a bit um, uh, when I've got Arthur Lowe here to, uh, to carry that particular weight? Um, and also the reading of this is so tremendous. Um, this is the bit that we were talking about earlier about Hard for Huttle. Um, uh, and it really says something profound, I think, about the uh, suburban mindset which uh, Puta represents. If you listen to this, you can hear him um, doing anything <laughs> in the teeth of um, someone being quite rude to him and about people like him and um, coming out with the upper hand. I think so, anyway. Here it is. May the 10th. Received a letter from Mr Franching of Peckham asking us to dine with him tonight at seven o'clock to meet Mr. Hardfur Huttle, a very clever writer for the American papers. I must say it was quite a distinguished party. And although we did not know anybody personally, they all seemed to be quite swells. I sat next to Mrs. Field at dinner. She seemed a well-informed lady, but was very deaf. It did not much matter, for Mr. Hardfur Huttle did all the talking. He is a marvellously intellectual man and says things which from other people would seem quite alarming. Mrs. Perdick, who seemed to be a bright and rather sharp woman, said, uh, Mr. Huttle, we'll meet you halfway, that is. Till you get halfway through your cigar. And that, at all events, will be the happy medium. I shall never forget the effect of the words happy medium had upon him. Positively alarmed me. He said something like the following. Happy medium, indeed. Do you know, happy medium are two words which mean miserable mediocrity. I say go first class or third. Marry a duchess or her kitchen maid. The happy medium means respectability, and respectability means insipidness. Does it not, Mr. Pooter? I was so taken aback by being personally appealed to uh, that I could only bow apologetically and say I feared I... I was not competent to offer an opinion. He continued with an amazing eloquence that made his unwelcome opinions positively convincing. The happy medium is nothing more or less than a vulgar half-measure. It is half-hearted, respectable, in fact, a happy medium, and will spend the rest of his days in a suburban villa with a stucco column portico resembling a four-post bedstead. We all laughed. That sort of thing, continued Mr. Huttle, belongs to a soft man with a soft beard, with a soft head and a made tie that hooks on. <laughs> seemed rather personal, and twice I caught myself looking in the glass of the chiffonier, for I had on a tie that hooked on, and, uh, and why not? If these remarks were not personal, they were rather careless. <laughs> Edward. I've got a, 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 an observation that Kate Flint 
makes about the Doctor oh. of a Nobody in Kate relation Flint. to where she <laughs> says that one of the one of the reasons why uh, the Diary of a Nobody continues to be continues to resonate or has been so popular for so long is it does a brilliant simultaneous thing which it allows the reader both to identify with but also feel superior to one's neighbor it's like reading about somebody who lives next door or in the same street or who one works with mm. and sympathizing with i've got an issue with this that's my life that is genuinely my life i live Putin's life i put up everything i put on on facebook i say i've done this today people go yeah you didn't know and i go no i did i did this and, it, and so Everything I do is basically, I mean, th this is why uh, it, it is the perfect lockdown book, because meeting people is awful. And you should, <laughs> you should never, you should never ever meet people. You should just stay in your home uh, and be alone. And, 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 and yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Edward. Thanks very much, Laura. Both supers, if not swells, for polishing yeah. up a comic classic, to Nikki Birch for catching the conversation and turning it into a capital show, and to Unbound for allowing us to turn a meat tea into a slap-up feed. You can download all 114 previous episodes, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at batlister.fm, and we're always pleased if you contact us via Twitter or Facebook. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We started this to keep backlisted afloat in uncertain times. We don't no longer get money from anywhere else, and we'd prefer not to have intrusive paid-for adverts. Even a small gesture of financial support helps. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early, and for half the price of a bottle of cheap fizz, lock listeners get two extra lock listeds a month, our mental green room where we talk, cry, chortle and swear about music, film, TV, as well as books. You also get to hear your name read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. And so John is going to lead off this week's batch of lock listeners. Uh, thank you to Dan Richards. Dan Richards, who, and this is a coincidental, he's coming on, he's a guest next time. Yeah. It's amazing. Pay Thank play. you, Dan. Uh, to Raki Rao, to Philippa Swan, to Janet Norman, to Rachel Cole, to Ruth Imry, to Sarah Wosley, to Jude Cook. Former guest. Jude. Yep. To Sorrel Hirschberg, to Deborah Candiob, to Carol Octoloni, to Dala Hani, to Sarah von Ofusian, to Robert Harvey, to Lynn Bullock. To Julia Croydon, it's not spelt the same way as Croydon, but it's close enough. <laughs> Lucy Maydill, to the soup. Thank you, Andrew Lee, Cameron Martin, Sue Smith, Rebecca Demarie, Matthew Heen, Simon Slightholm. Thanks, Simon, my fellow XTC fan. Stephen Banger, <laughs> Andrew Nunn, Mrs. Miller. And yes, it's that Mrs. Miller. Thank you, Mrs. Miller. <laughs> Helen Watling, Lisa Andel, William Welsh. Thanks, everyone. Thanks very much for supporting Backlisted and Locklisted. We'll be back in a fortnight. Back in a fortnight. See you then. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everyone. That's Thank right. Thank you. Thank you. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.